Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Wendy Myers. Welcome to the Myers Detox Podcast. And today we have one of my health heroes, Chris Cresser, on the show. And uh, I've been following his work for a really long time. He has amazing, amazing uh, research uh, on his website. Um, just really a great podcast, the Revolution Health Radio, and uh, highly recommend it. And today we're going to be talking about the hidden epidemic of nutrient deficiency. So you know we talk, we touch on that uh, on this show, and I talk a lot about mineral deficiencies and and nutrients needed to detox. But today we're going to talk about just in general about uh, the epidemic of nutrient de- density or nutrient uh, deficiency, rather. And we'll talk about the foods that are most nutrient dense. We'll talk about if you need to supplement for optimal health. We'll talk about the issues with the uh, carnivore diet versus the vegetarian and vegan diets and some of the inherent nutrient deficiencies that are seen across the board in vegetarian and vegan diets, what people people need to look out for and supplement with. Um, We also talk about uh, the problem with the RDAs, the recommended daily allowance of nutrients and why they're grossly inefficient and giving us information about our nutrient needs. They're much higher than the RDAs. And we also talk about, uh, you know, bioavailability of nutrients and how the nutrient level on a label doesn't mean that's what you're getting in your body. And we talk about the most uh, bioavailable foods or, you know, where the nutrients are most bioavailable. And we also talk about the issues with, um, you know, phytates and oxalates and other uh, you know, things in food that bind to nutrients and minerals and make them less available. We also talk about the issue of, you know, so many things working against the absorption of nutrients. So, so it's no surprise the statistics that Chris quotes today in the show um, are pretty grave. How we have such a huge a uh, huge amount of magnesium deficiency, vitamin D, um, just uh, so many different nutrients that people are deficient. And so stay tuned. This is an amazing, amazing show. Even for people that are you know, very well educated on nutrition, you want to pay attention. So I know you guys listening are concerned about your heavy metal load, your toxin load. So I created a quiz at heavymetalsquiz.com. It just takes a couple seconds. After you take the quiz, you get your results and you also get a free video series on how to detox your body. All your frequently asked questions about detox, uh, the best supplements for detox, the best tests for detox, and just so many other questions answered. Just go take that. It takes just a couple of seconds at heavymetalsquiz.com. Our guest today, uh, Chris Cresser, he is uh, a acupuncturist and he has an MS and he's the co-founder of the California Center for Functional Medicine, the founder of the Cresser Institute and the host of the top rank health podcast, Revolution Health Radio. He's also the creator and founder of chriscresser.com and the New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Cure and Unconventional Medicine. He's one of the most respected clinicians and educators in the fields of functional medicine and ancestral health, and he's trained over 2,000 clinicians and health coaches from over 50 countries in his unique approach. Chris was named one of the 100 most influential people in health and fitness by greatest.com and has appeared as a featured guest on Dr. Oz, Time, The Atlantic, NPR, Fox and Friends, and other national media outlets. And he currently lives in Park City, Utah with his wife and daughter. You can learn more about Chris and his work at chriscresser.com and adaptnaturals.com. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Wendy, it's a pleasure to be here. So you focused uh, recently on uh, nutrient density and uh, really talking about nutrition and why people are so nutrient deficient. Um, so can you talk a little bit about uh, why nutrient density is so important when it comes to your diet? Yeah. So um, there's two types of nutrients we can get from food. One is macronutrients, so protein, carbohydrates, and fat, which everybody's familiar with. And then the second is micronutrients. So those are vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients, and other trace compounds that we can find in food. I think most of the focus over the last few decades has been on macronutrients, you know, all the low carb, low fat, high protein, low protein. Um, this is what has dominated the headlines and it, and it's important. It is, you know, macronutrients are very important. We can't live without them and, and the ratio of 
you know, macronutrients that we eat can have a big impact on our health. However, micronutrients, I would argue a bigger lever for most people in terms of the impact that that's going to have on their on their health and their longevity. We know we need about 40 micronutrients to function optimally. Dr. Bruce Ames, uh, renowned microbiologist at uh, UC Berkeley, has done pioneering research here. And he argues, and I agree with this, is that maximizing our intake of these micronutrients should be the primary goal of our diet because suboptimal amounts of any of these nutrients can contribute to the development of chronic disease and even shorten our lifespan. Um, and the bad news is that almost 100% of people living in the developed world, even in the United States, the richest country in the world, are suffering from at least one micronutrient deficiency and often several. And, and why is that? Can you talk about different reasons like soil, stress, you yeah. know, uh, people's horrible, horrifying diets that they have. Yeah, I was, <laughs> that's a good word for it. <laughs> horrifying. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure for, for most of the listeners of your show, I, I, I think they're probably not in this category, but, you know, 60% of the calories the average American consumes today come from ultra processed food, not just processed food, but ultra processed food. So these are, you know, cookies, cakes, crackers, chicken nuggets, pizza, soda pop, candy, um, all of the kind of packaged, refined uh, foods, junk foods, snack foods, these foods now comprise over half the calories that the average American needs. And the problem is they're very high in calories and they're very low in nutrients. In fact, in some cases, they're virtually devoid of nutrients like refined flour, refined sugar, and industrial seed oils like soybean oil, corn oil, et cetera, that most foods are processed in. They, they have almost no nutrients and yet they are um, loaded with calories and other th uh, things that if when overconsumed, are highly problematic. So that's the reason number one on a, on a broader kind of societal scale for listeners of your show. Um, we, we hope that that doesn't apply to them as much at least, but um, there are other reasons that even people who are eating a, a relatively healthy nutrient dense diet can get into trouble. One, as you mentioned, is decline in soil quality. And this interesting thing about this is it's not that the nutrients are no longer in the soil, it's that the plants can't extract the nutrients from the soil as well as they used to be able to be. And that is because we've disrupted the microbiome of the soil. So the, new, the microbes in soil, one of the roles they play is they help plants extract nutrients from the soil. And when we kill those microbes in the soil because of, with chemical pesticides, fertilizers, and um, industrial agricultural methods, then the plants can't extract the nutrients in the same way. And then the animals that eat the plants can't extract the nutrients in the same way. So that's a big factor. One study I read suggested that we'd have to eat eight oranges today to get the same level of nutrition that our grandparents got from eating a single orange. So that's a pretty profound change in just a couple of generations. And then we have, uh, you know, similarly, we have a, a global food system now, which has certainly has some benefits, but one of the biggest downsides is as soon as you harvest a plant out of the ground, it immediately starts losing nutritional value. And so if it takes 2000 miles for a carrot to reach your plate as a commonly shared statistic goes, then it's going to be losing nutrition that uh, every mile on that journey. And by the time it does reach your plate, it's not the same carrot from a nutritional perspective than if you were to just go out in your backyard and pick it or buy it from a farmer's market. Um, environmental toxins, I know this is an issue that's close to your heart. Um, toxins interfere with nutrient absorption. And uh, that's everything from glyphosate to heavy metals like lead, cadmium, arsenic, to uh, organic pet, uh, chemicals like um, you know, plastics, bisphenol A. Uh, there's so many toxins in, the, in our environment now. And some of the minerals that we need to function properly, they try to protect us by binding to these toxins, uh, which is a good thing. But then the bad thing is that we don't absorb that mineral anymore. Um, and it can be problematic or we absorb the mineral and the toxin. And, and I don't need to tell you what problems uh, that can cause. So 
Uh, and then the last thing I'll mention, there are many more factors, but I, uh, I'll just mention one more, um, which is that chronic disease in, impacts nutrient availability in a couple of different ways. Number one, it decreases our absorption of nutrient, particularly any chronic health condition that involves the gut, which is most chronic health conditions. And the second way that it impacts things is it, if you have a chronic disease, you actually have a higher need for nutrients because a, a, a disease is a stressor on the body and stress increases the, the need for nutrients. So chronic stress, chronic disease, that will all increase the demand for nutrients. So we get hit on both sides with that one. Yeah, and I think even if you eat an amazing healthy diet, there's so many things working against nutrient absorption from, you know, yes. the gut poor gut lining, toxins affecting our microbiome and gut lining and uh, stress. There's just so many and glyphosate, all these different heavy metals and pesticides that kill or, you know, decimate our microbiome. Yeah, exactly. We we live in a really different world than even our parents did, and especially our our great grandparents, and and further on, on back from there. Um, you know, I would love to be able to just get all the nutrients I need from eating food. That's what I prefer. I got to be honest. I'm I'm I don't like taking supplements very much. I'm not very good at it. I tend to forget. I'm a bad patient in, in that regard, and. Um, you know, in a perfect world, I would just eat my nutrient dense, healthy food and, and call it a day. That would be it. But um, I, I know from my clinical experience working with well over thousand patients in my career and training thousands of healthcare practitioners and testing virtually everybody that I saw in the clinic for nutrient deficiency. And I can really count on two hands the number of people who didn't have at least one, but often multiple nutrient deficiencies. And again, these, my patients are not eating cheese doodles and um, drinking big gulps and do eating donuts. They, you know, I mean, not, at least not regularly. <laughs> and they were people who'd followed my work for a long period of time, were already eating like some type of nutrient dense diet, like paleo Mediterranean type of diet and doing a lot of the right things. And yet they were still coming up short. And that was what really opened my eyes to this issue. Because if these people who are highly educated and highly motivated, doing all the right things, they're still nutrient deficient, then I knew we had a problem on a, on a much bigger scale. And what nutrients are people most likely to be deficient in? Well, that's a really good question. And one that you would think would be very easy to answer. And there are some, some pretty easy answers. But I think one of the biggest issues with nutrient uh, deficiency is that we're not looking enough. We, we're not testing people routinely. I mean, most people I ask, and they, I say, hey, last time you went to your primary care doctor, did they do a full nutrient, uh, you know, nutrient test? No. You know, if, if you're lucky, you get tested for vitamin D, um, maybe a couple of others, but it's extremely rare in my experience that someone goes to the doctor and gets a full nutrient analysis. It just rarely happens. So you have to take the data that we do have with a grain of salt for that reason. Um, it's incomplete and it's often based on uh, food frequency questionnaires where people are re reporting on what they ate sometimes weeks or months ago, which is totally unreliable. I, don't, I hardly remember what I ate you know, two days ago, much less two months ago. Um, but with those caveats, we can look at like data from the Linus Pauling Institute for uh, who keeps pretty good track of this stuff. And 100% uh, of people don't get enough potassium, 94% vitamin D, 92% choline. I think it's around 92% magnesium if you use the latest figures, 89% vitamin E in the high 80s for EPA and DHA, which are the long chain omega-3 fats. Um, and then it just goes on down the line from there. I mean, we're, as you can already see from those numbers, we're not talking about small percentages of people. We're talking about the vast majority of people being deficient in, I just named five different uh, micronutrients. So it's, it's a widespread problem. And again, one of the biggest misconceptions is that nutrient deficiency only occurs in the developing world. That's absolutely not true. It's a huge problem, even in developed countries like the US, Canada, and Australia, the UK. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, we have worse diets and probably more stress in various ways. Right. And, um, and so let's talk a little bit about like minerals. 
I mean, uh, people are, you know, very deficient minerals and, you know, magnesium and uh, zinc, calcium, selenium is a huge problem. Yeah. Lithium. I mean, everyone I test deficient in selenium, lithium, low in magnesium and other things that are needed to, Iodine, for the body to work. People are low in. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think um, minerals I, uh, are more impacted from what I've seen in, in, uh, from soil depletion than some of the vitamins in that tend to be in plant foods. I think they also um, are affected more by toxins because the, it's the minerals usually that tend to bind to the toxins and then become unabsorbable if we're exposed to those toxins, whereas that doesn't happen as much with the vitamins. So I do agree that uh, in a lot of cases, the minerals are kind of taking the brunt of things. and. One of the other issues with minerals is bioavailability. So um, a really good example of this is calcium, the bioavailability of calcium in spinach. So on on paper, spinach has 115 milligrams of calcium. That sounds great, right? It's like, wow, that's over a 10th of the RDA. All I have to do is eat one serving of spinach and I'm gonna make a big dent in my calcium intake. But then you, you dig deeper and you find that the bioavailability of calcium, which means the amount that you will actually absorb when you eat it, is only 5%. So you're going to absorb 6 milligrams of that oh, wow. 115 milligrams when you eat spinach because spinach is really high in something called oxalic acid or oxalate. And oxalates bind to minerals and prevent us from absorbing them. And so... Um, this is not just true for calcium, it's true for iron and zinc. Plant-based forms of iron and zinc are much poorly, more poorly absorbed than the animal uh, forms like heme iron or the form of zinc that occurs in animal products. And so uh, most people aren't aware of these differences and, and I can't blame them because they don't, who's telling them? <laughs> Their doctor's not telling them. They don't, we don't get educated about this in school. They naturally just go into the market or they look up spinach online, they see the 115 milligrams of calcium and they make the understandable assumption that they're going to absorb that much of it, but they're not. And this is where people get into trouble with all kinds of minerals. Yeah. Cause it, like you, like I said, it's not what you eat, it's what you absorb. Yeah. And yeah, the RDA is a huge problem, especially when you're we're eating nuts that have tons of phytates and yeah. yeah, you're just not getting everything on that RDA label for sure. Yeah. And the other, I mean, and the RDA itself is inadequate. That's another thing um, that most people don't realize. The RDA was originally developed uh, in World War II as a means to determine the daily intake of a nutrient that uh, would support soldiers, you know, that would basically keep soldiers from developing deficiency-related diseases. Just keep them alive. War, <laughs> That's yeah, all that was required. Wartime <laughs> war, war here, you know, we're not, we're not talking about what's optimal for long-term health and longevity. We're talking about, yeah, what's required to keep them alive and, and abil- able to function and perform during a wartime environment. So most people don't realize that about the RDA, and certainly the RDA has been updated over time, but um, it doesn't take uh, often doesn't take ac- into account factors like um, health status. Um, so as I said earlier, people who are sick tend to need more or have a chronic disease tend to need more nutrients. It doesn't take nutrient synergy into account. So for example, vitamin D actually requires the presence of magnesium to be activated. And so even if you're getting enough vitamin D from sun or food or supplements, if you're magnesium deficient, you won't actually, your biological activity of vitamin D will still be low. And that is true for almost every nutrient. They require other nutrients to to be properly absorbed and utilized. And and the RDA doesn't take that into account at all. So if you're meeting the RDA for a particular nutrient, then it's like, okay, great, no worries. But if you're actually deficient in, in some other nutrients, then even meeting the RDA for that nutrient won't be enough. And then the last thing is these RDAs are just often out of date. Um, magnesium is a really good example. Um, there was a paper published in 2021 by some researchers who noted that the RDA for magnesium is strongly influenced by the average average body weight. If you look at the mathematical formula for calculating the RDA, it includes aver- a, a, num- a, a number for average weight for the average adult male and the average adult female. Well, the last time that the RDA was updated for magnesium, 
the average body weight for an adult female was 133 pounds, and the average body weight for an adult male was 166 pounds. While today, the average body weight for a female is 169 pounds, and the average body weight for a male is 196 pounds. So that's a profound, you know, it's a profound difference in a short period of time. And when they recalculated the RDA for magnesium, it went from uh, 320 milligrams a day for women to four, four, about 500 milligrams a day. And for men, it went from 420 milligrams a day to about 600 to 650 milligrams. So this is another example where you could look up the RDA on like, Healthline or some site like that and be like, oh, okay, 320 milligrams, I'm getting that. Not realizing that the RDA actually now should be 200 milligrams a day higher. And even with that, most people are still falling short of that outdated RDA, not to mention the new updated RDA. So there's so many problems that aren't obvious just on the surface that when you dig a little deeper, you see what kind of situation we've gotten ourselves into. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of nerds listening. They're calculating all this stuff and their diet. You know, <laughs> I used to be one of them. I used to be like, oh, you know, looking at all the labels and what I was getting. And, you know, and I used to take a huge bag of supplements, just like a, a grocery bag full of supplements. And I ate all my food from the farmer's market, all organic, all fresh, cooked it at home. And I still had nutrient deficiencies. I did a nutrient mm -hmm. eval. I was blown away. I was like, what exactly is it that I need to do? At that time, I had been vegetarian for about 18 months and was starting to have health problems, you know, big surprise. Um, but even with all the effort and concentration, and I still had a lot of nutrient deficiencies. Yeah. You know, again, it makes me sad to say this because I wish it was different. I wish that we lived in a different kind of world where you could put that effort in and you would be assured of success, you know, where you, you eat nutrient dense food and that's it. And to be honest, Wendy, it took me a while to accept it. I feel like I was in much earlier, my, you know, 10 years ago, I was uh, in a sort of denial for maybe a year or so where, where I was just really sticking to my guns that we should be able to meet all of our nutrient needs from food. The operative word there is should. <laughs> yeah, I still believe that we should be able to in an ideal world. But once I really, you know, I, I just couldn't keep believing that anymore once I you know as you know as a clinician you learn we learn so much from our patients you know and just doing one nutrient deficiency test after another that kept coming back with multiple deficiencies even in people who are doing all the right things reading the scientific literature pretty much every paper that has come out over the last 10 years on on nutrient status and nutrient deficiency training clinicians, you know, thousands of clinicians from over 50 countries around the world, seeing that this is a problem everywhere, not in the US, the UK, Canada, China, Australia, New Zealand. It's the same story everywhere. I just could no longer maintain the fiction that we can meet all of our nutrient needs through food. And then once I accepted that, I started trying to answer the question, okay, well, what do we do with this information? Like, what's the best approach for most people? And I still believe that the foundation should always be a nutrient-dense diet. I'm not one of these people that thinks we should drink Soylent Green, you know, <laughs> nutrient-fortified um, beverages like some people in the Silicon Valley, you know, in the, the, the computer world. I think we should get most everything we can from food, basically. But I recognize that that's not enough in the case of many nutrients. And we're not, not we're not perfect either you know it, most of us live in a pretty fast-paced life uh, or or you know a life that ha involves other obligations you know f friends family work other interests you know we're not in the kitchen all day every day preparing our own food in most cases and there are inevitably areas where we're going to fall short and so you know rather than beat ourselves up about that like i, I my approach is Let's recognize the reality of that and create a strategy that can actually help us to mitigate those downsides of modern life. Yeah. So what is your strategy? So what are the most nutrient dense foods that people should eat? 
Yeah, so this might surprise some folks and might disappoint some folks because I, I, in a lot of cases, they're not including a lot of these foods in their diet. But um, the best answer to this question comes from a paper that was published uh, in 20, March of 2022 in the journal Frontiers in Nutrition. Uh, the author was Ty Beal, who works for on the knowledge leadership team at the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. And that's an organization that's dedicated to addressing malnutrition worldwide. And so the question they were trying to answer is, where do we get the biggest bang for our buck from food, from a nutrient density perspective? Because if you work for an organization and your job is to figure out how to address malnutrition, you have to be very practical. You know, you have to think, you have to think about like, what are the foods that we could give people that are going to rapidly and effectively increase their nutrient levels with the, with the least amount uh, of effort, essentially, uh, and the lowest cost. And so um, they created a scale of nutrient density that ranked foods according to the number of calories or grams needed to provide one third of the RDA for vi vitamin A, folate or retinol, the active form of vitamin A, not beta carotene, folate, which is B9, vitamin B12, calcium, iron, and zinc. And they were specifically focusing on women of reproductive age because that is the group that is at the highest risk of nutrient deficiency worldwide. So two things about this study before I go into the numbers. One is that it was the first study that of this kind that ever that took bioavailability into account. And as we just discussed earlier, that's hugely important because otherwise you could see spinach way high up on the scale without realizing that you're not even going to absorb most of those nutrients that it contains on paper, at least the, the minerals. The second thing is that uh, because of the way they, they created the scale, it's it's looking at the amount of calories and grams of a food you need to meet a basic nutrient threshold. So a lower score is actually going to be better or indicate higher nutrient density. So for example, you only need to eat 11 calories of liver, which is a minute amount to get to that nutrient threshold that they define. And so liver is by far the number one most nutrient dense food according to this scale. So it had a score of 11, 11 calories. The next food, which I can guess that precisely 0.001% of your audience is eating, it may be less than that, is spleen. Oh, so, delicious. Yeah, spleen. Yes. That's, and that's 62. So as even as nutrient dense as spleen is, it's still five times less nutrient dense than liver. And that's not a knock on spleen. It's just another testament to how incredibly nutrient dense liver is. Um, so the, the liver king, that whole drama, that's, that's a mess. But he, he has, he's not wrong about liver and the power of liver. The next one is small dried fish. So those are like anchovies and sardines that in this case were dried. So the nutritional value is concentrated. And th that's not common food in, in this country, but it, it is around the world. So they included that. Cats uh, in the U.S. eat a lot of those. That's true. That's <laughs> true. Um, dark leafy green vegetables. So, you know, we mentioned some of the bioavailability issues with some of the minerals with things like spinach, but, you know, kale, chard, some other uh, dark leafy greens are actually fairly low in um, oxalic acid and, and are a very good source of nutrients. Um, bivalves like oysters set, uh, are at 90, kidney, beef kidney, 125, another organ meat, beef heart, 163, another organ meat, crustaceans like shrimp, 193, goat, beef, eggs, and milk. So that is, those are the top 11 foods. And what the biggest surprise is, I think, for most people on this list is that there was only one veg, one plant food in that top 11 uh, foods from a nutrient density perspective. I do want to point out that this was just measuring those essential vitamins and minerals like A, B12, folate, calcium, iron, and zinc. It was not measuring phytonutrients. Um, those are things like polyphenols, flavonoids, carotenoids, um, fiber. And these foods are important to our health, I believe. And so I'm not suggesting that people should only eat animal products. I'm not a believer in the carnivore approach in general. I think it has some value, but I'm, that's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying when it comes to 
the essential vitamins and minerals, the foods that I just listed are objectively speaking, this is not an opinion. This is a research study that was peer reviewed using the most of uh, recent validated methods for measuring nutrient levels from a bioavailability perspective, those are the foods that are most nutrient dense. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, speaking to that, you know, what are some of the issues with the vegetarian and vegan diets, uh, in your opinion? Yeah. So if we go back to, um, Dr. Bruce Ames and his, his, what he said about what the goal should be for the diet, he said, it's, maximizing your intake of all of the different nutrients that we need. And we can think of those nutrients in two different classes. One are the essential vitamins and minerals. And by essential, that that has a very specific connotation in this context. It means we can't live without them, that we will develop serious disease and even and die if we don't get enough of them. And it means the body can't make them on its own. So we actually, we, we do need to obtain them from the diet. And so those are the vitamins and minerals everybody's familiar with, B12, iron, zinc, vitamin A, uh, vitamin, vitamin D, vitamin K, et cetera. Um, those are preferentially found in animal foods. And in some cases they're exclusively found in animal foods. So if you eat a plant-based diet, a completely plant-based diet, you have to account for that some way or another. B12 is a good example. Uh, there's often claims made in the in the plant-based diet community that you can get B12 from spirulina and yeast and other foods, but that, that's not true B12. It's an analog of B12 that doesn't have the same effect and in fact can even block the uptake and absorption of true B12. So, um, you know, the more people who've been on plant-based diet are more educated about that, take, take action accordingly. They take a B12 supplement because they know that they have to meet that need for B12 some other way. They're not going to be able to get it through the diet. That's not just true, you know, for B12. There are other nutrients like iron. The absorb iron is found in plant foods, but it's absorbed much more poorly in plant foods than it is from animal from animal foods. Heme iron has a much greater absorption rate than ferrous iron in plants. And so vegetarians are at higher risk of iron deficiency. They're at higher risk of zinc deficiency for the same reason. They're at pretty high risk of EPA, not getting enough EPA or DHA, which are the long chain omega-3 fats found in seafood. So a lot of vegans will take a DHA supplement that's derived from algae. Um, so those are the biggest nutrients of concern on a vegetarian and vegan diet. Is it possible to follow those approaches and, and supplement wisely and make it work? Absolutely. Some people are able to do that, but the risk is high of those kinds of nutrient deficiencies. And that's documented in the scientific research. It's also, it's been true in my clinical practice. Uh, I've treated a number of vegans and vegetarians and it got to the point where I could recognize what I would call a fingerprint or a thumbprint of a blood test from a vegetarian or a vegan. And in fact, in our model, the way we structured new patient visits, I would see lab work for somebody before I actually saw them in, the, in, the, in, the, in my first visit with them. And so it became a sort of interesting intellectual exercise where I could look at the lab results without knowing anything about the person who I was gonna see in a few weeks and, and basically guess what their diet was from the lab results and you could see a very clear pattern with vegans and vegetarians with the the lab results the second category of nutrients though because now i hear all the carnivore diet advocates nodding their head and cheering and saying see see i told you but i'm going to flip over here and say there's a whole there's a whole another category of nutrients that i that are not essential to be fair and by essential we mean you can live without them um, you, you know, you're, you're probably not going to die, at least not immediately. These are um, phytonutrients and, and even one essential nutrient, vitamin C, is, is really not, is, is almost exclusively found in plant foods. There is vitamin C in adrenal glands. But again, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that very few of your pe people listening to this show are eating adrenal glands on a regular basis or even taking them as a supplement. Um, so vitamin C you're mostly getting from plant foods. Um, then you have carotenoids like lycopene, beta carotene, lutein, zeaxanthin, dialyl sulfides, which are from the allium class of vegetables like garlic. 
polyphenols, flavonoids, uh, lignans, plant sterols and stanols, prebiotic fibers, etc. And these are mostly, if not exclusively, found from plant foods. And there's a lot of research over the past three decades, especially, that attests to the health benefits of, of these foods. They can upregulate our antioxidant defense system. They can help protect us against chemicals and toxins in the environment. Um, they have a whole range of benefits. And so I believe for, for this reason that if we're trying to maximize our intake of all of the different nutrients that have shown to be beneficial to health, that we need to eat some combination of plant and animal foods. And what that exact combination is and how that ratio breaks down, I think there's actually a lot of leeway for individual preference or specific needs based on health conditions or whatever you know there we have examples of cultures traditionally that ate a very high percentage of their calories from animal foods and just a little bit of plant food and they were healthy and we have the examples of the opposite where people ate mostly plant foods but carefully selected animal foods like organ meats or shellfish and they were healthy too so i think there's a lot of flexibility there so going back to the organ meats, so how can people get more organ meats in their diet? And I definitely recommend liver supplements for almost every uh, patient that I'm working with, our practitioners are working with, because it is so nutrient dense and mineral dense. Yeah. So there are a few different ways. I mean, first of all, if you are one of the few people that are fortunate enough to have eaten organ meats when you were growing up um, and you, you actually like the taste and the texture, uh, you know, just beef, liver and onions, for example, is a great way to eat it. Um, if, if you're like most people and you don't care for the taste and texture, there, there are a few different uh, tricks or, or ways to make it easier. One that I found that is is pretty easy, not very time consuming from a preparation standpoint is, let's say you're gonna make um, ground beef for something like a, a meatloaf or taco beef or something like that. You, you get a couple of pounds of ground, of ground beef, you mix in whatever seasonings you wanna make and preferably for this use, you, you are seasoning it um, because you're trying to conceal to some extent the taste of liver. And then you get three ounces or six ounces of liver chop it up really finely, mix it around in the, in the ground beef and then with the spices. And a lot of people actually don't mind it that way and they're able to tolerate it. Disguises both the taste and the texture pretty well, uh, makes it a little bit easier to eat. Another option would be pate is, I call it kind of like a gateway organ meat <laughs> because uh, a lot of people did grow up eating you know chicken liver pate or other forms of pate and just just the way that it's made is a little bit easier for people to uh to tolerate even if they don't love organ meats um there are several other examples um, of uh, uh, cultures that consume organ meats in in specific ways so like sweetbreads u.s wellness meats sells some some different um pre-made uh, types of organ meats, like shark, charcuterie type of stuff. So those are generally the best options for people who don't care for the, uh, care to prepare it or don't care for the taste. Yeah. In Texas, we can put it in chili. So there's so right. many spices in chili yeah. you can add it in there. You won't even know. And, um, and what do you say to some of the listeners concerned about toxins being in liver since the liver processes all the toxins and there being toxic residue in liver and liver supplements? Well, it's true that the liver processes the toxins, but the fat tissue tends to be where toxins are stored. So I would be more concerned actually about somebody consuming, uh, from a toxins perspective, consuming conventionally like fat from conventionally raised dairy animals. Um, so like milk products or butter or ghee uh, or really fatty cuts of meat like chuck roast or oxtail or, or brisket. I really, really recommend people get past, you know, pasture raised uh, beef and, and or preferably organic beef if they're eating those fattier um, cuts or, or portions of the animal because that's where the toxins are stored, whereas they are processed in the liver and, and, and go through the liver, but usually end up in the fat tissue. So we do, we've done testing on organ meats in the past and we test our organ supplement and uh, we have not found you might, significant amounts of microbial residue, heavy metals or, or other toxins. Uh, so it's not a big concern for me. 
All right. Fantastic. Fantastic. And so when it comes to supplementation, uh, people are trying to get the nutrients they need. So what nutrients should people be careful supplementing with? Yeah, that's a great question because you can get yourself into trouble here. Um, there are some nutrients that uh, exist, need to exist in what we might call like a Goldilocks range. You don't want too little and you don't want too much. Uh, there are other nutrients that, as far as we know, don't really have an upper limit in terms of toxicity, but you might get, you know, find yourself running to the bathroom. For example, vitamin C, um, there's no known upper limit when it comes to toxicity, but if you take enough vitamin C, you're going to have diarrhea and that will be the, you know, the, the sign that you've overdone it and taken too much. Yeah. I've had a number of clients email me panicked. Even, even health, even health practitioners, (laughs) because people just don't, they don't realize. They don't realize that. Yeah. So, um, but there are nutrients where that's, that's actually, there, there is a significant risk of, of overdosing. Um, Calcium is one that I mentioned. If there are studies that suggest if you take too much calcium, you can increase the risk of, of kidney stones and soft tissue issues. Selenium, you can definitely overdo. Uh, there's, there are clear studies of selenium toxicity in the scientific literature, vitamin A or retinol, you can overdo and get too much vitamin D. You can overdo it. I think it's pretty rare, but, um, I've seen people with toxic levels of vitamin D in their blood, like 125 or 150 even, which is, is, is scary because <laughs> it really can affect calcium deposition, like cause calcium deposition in the arteries um, and soft tissues can increase the risk of kidney stones. Iodine can be problematic for some people, um, particularly those with Hashimoto's or autoimmune thyroid conditions. Uh, high doses of iodine, especially if they're selenium deficient as well, can be an issue. And then iron. Uh, you know, iron overload, the genetic condition that causes iron overload, hemochromatosis, is fatal if it's not treated in some cases. So that gives you an idea of how serious excess iron can be. But having said all that, if you, it's much more difficult to get yourself in trouble from food than it is from supplements. And then if with supplements, like one of the reasons that we've formulated the multi the way that we did, we didn't include iron at all. We didn't include calcium at all. We have a very low dose of calcium, uh, 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 iodine, excuse me, we didn't include, we have a very low dose of calcium at 50 milligrams. Exactly for this reason, because I don't want, didn't want people, you know, we, we were selling a product to people who are following all kinds of different dietary approaches. And we don't know what their background intake is like. So we want to be conservative with the nutrients of concern so that you know, if, if someone's eating a very high calcium diet, they're not going to get 500 milligrams of extra calcium from our multi and push themselves over the edge. Um, so there are some nutrients that it's best to take a more custom individualized approach with, and then others that are just safer because, you know, the, the, the threshold for toxicity is so high that most people are not going to ever reach it in a normal uh, day-to-day diet. Well, yeah, tell us about your supplement line, the Adapt Naturals. Yeah, so, you know, this came out of 15 years of clinical experience treating patients, training practitioners, health coaches, my own research, my own experience of chronic illness. It's really the culmination of all of that experience. And I wanted, you know, as, as we talked about earlier, once I realized how big of a problem nutrient deficiency is and how many people it affects, it was kind of like, before I knew that there was like the little tip of the iceberg sticking out. And then over time I got visibility into just how big that iceberg is underneath the surface. And I wanted to figure out a way that I could just help a a much broader number of people than I would ever be able to see in the clinic as a clinician or even uh, uh, impact via the clinicians that I was training. And that's how Adapt Naturals came about. So it's it's a line of supplements that is designed to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out all of the challenges that we talked about before and the ingredients are um, naturally occurring bioidentical food food based or as bioavailable as possible they're evidence-based you know lots of peer-reviewed research behind them high quality gmp manufacturing i just wanted to create products that people could trust because you know, let's be honest, there's a lot of BS in the supplement world. There are a lot of companies that are in it just to make money. 
there's a lot of really shady stuff that's happening and i um you know i just wanted people to have uh, products where they could they knew they could meet their nutrient needs um, and they could just trust them and not have to spend hours every day researching, <laughs> try to figure it out on their own. Yeah. I just cringe when people put that they are taking, uh, you know, vitamins from the drugstore, from the GNC. The, yeah. Or from the, their <laughs> membership store. I'm like, Oh God, you're yeah. doing so much more harm than yeah. good. Or there's so many, there's so much binders in those that are, right. you know, binding it, keeping it in that pill form that they just poop them out just yeah. uh just whole like they're not getting anything at all yeah it's uh i've always asked patient all new patients who came to see me in the practice i would have them bring all the supplements that they're taking in a bag of course some people show up with like a second carry-on suitcase with the, their supplements because they're taking that many and i was as i'm sure you you have been wendy just shocked and and dismayed by what people would bring in and it, you know again I don't put the blame on the ind individual people because it was often from guidance that they had received you know previously from another doctor another clinician or something they read you know someone they follow online or in social media or whatever there's so much conflicting information out there it's hard for even healthcare professionals to make sense of much less lay people who don't have training and and aren't able to critically de deconstruct the claims that are being made <laughs> Uh, and see through some of the the, the nonsense, and I, yeah, I would I would frequently see p examples of where people were actively harming themselves, you know, and had been for years with supplements. Or on the flip side, like you said, people were just wasting money because they were taking supplements that had such low levels of nutrients or the, the such a, a form that was not bioavailable and not likely to be absorbed. Um, it, it's sad because I think actually if you do it right you can greatly minimize the number of supplements that you're taking and you can spend less money as a result you know you, you take a handful of products that are really high quality you end up spending less and taking fewer products than if you're doing a taking you know a bunch of different stuff with inferior ingredients yeah for sure less is more and and people you know i think unfortunately right now supplements can be pretty expensive prices are going up for yeah. a lot of things but you're better off taking a handful of a higher price supplements that are higher quality than a bunch of you know low quality ones you know i've had clients send me spreadsheets of the supplements that they're taking. And it's, it's just too much. If you're taking it like me in the beginning, I had to have a whole shopping bag full of supplements. It's too much. If you're not hungry after you take your, all your pills, <laughs> you know, that's might be a problem. <laughs> you a don't have problem. room for your meal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's what we, we don't want to be there. Right. That's why if you think about what the word supplement means, it means adding to something, you know, you're supplementing a healthy nutrient dense diet. And if you're, if you're doing it well, you should, you should be able to get by with fewer products, be, you know, and, and that's like with adapt naturals, we have the core plus bundle, which is a daily stack of five products. And it's specifically designed with that in mind. Like you're not going to be surprised to learn that one of them is an organ supplement. Why organs? Well, I explained it earlier. They're, of the 11 most nutrient dense foods, four of those are organs. And so we have those four organs in the supplement along with the fifth pancreas, which has a unique nutrient profile. And we have a full gram of liver and 500 milligrams of the others because liver, as I mentioned, is so much more nutrient dense even than the other organ products. So if you take an organ supplement, it's just, it's equivalent to, you know, eating one or two servings of those organ meats a week, and you're getting that incredible nutritional benefit without having to eat or prepare them. So you can get so much bigger bang for your buck by doing that than by taking a bunch of different isolated products. Uh, we have a mushroom blend. I'm, I've been a huge believer in the healing power of mushrooms for almost 20 years, because I originally, uh, way back in the day, studied Chinese medicine. And um mushrooms have been used in chinese medicine for over 3000 years at least 3000 years that we know of possibly longer uh and also in other traditional systems of medicine like ayurveda most traditional healing systems and and it's it's interesting because it's only recently that modern research has caught up and has started to elucidate all of the incredible health benefits of mushrooms but it's another food based naturally occurring set of nutrients that you know most people are just not 
eating a lot of mushrooms and, and particularly not the most nutrient dense uh, therapeutic stuff, types of mushrooms because some of those can be pretty bitter and chewy and not easy to eat. Like reishi is a good example. It's, it's an incredibly powerful mushroom, but you, know, you don't really want to eat it or use it in your cooking for the most part. Um, then we have a magnesium product because the vast majority of people are deficient in magnesium and don't get enough. And it's used in over 700 different enzymatic reactions in the body. Uh, we have a multi that's really more of like a primal or ancestral type of multi with just food-based naturally occurring ingredients for the most part. And then a unique form of vitamin E called tocotrienols, which are much more potent as antioxidants and much more potent as an anti-inflammatory than tocopherol. So the idea is just to give people a simple, easy routine to follow every day where they can feel and perform their best, not have to stay up spending hours doing internet research, just high quality ingredients they can trust and get back to living the life they want to live. And, and have you know so that their health is actually supporting that rather than getting in the way of it yeah and that natural form of vitamin e you mentioned is so important for detoxification and your liver health and it's just not found anywhere i mean it's mm -hmm. very rare usually getting the the synthetic form of vitamin e which is not helpful you need that for detoxification so important yeah and the reason that most companies use tocopherols in their products is it's a lot cheaper. I'm not going to lie that the token trienols are more expensive and they're more expensive for me as the man, you know, to, to make the product. And so the products, when you take them will be a little more expensive because we obviously have to charge more if we're paying more for the raw ingredient, but it's worth it because for two reasons. Number one, you know, as you said, vitamin E is one of the most potent antioxidants that we know of. It is the most potent antioxidant in the brain. So anyone concerned with brain health, cognitive function, reducing their risk of dementia and Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, neurodegenerative conditions, vitamin E is critical. And I mentioned earlier that 89% of people don't get enough vitamin E. So we're, it's a very, very important nutrient. The other problem is, as I'm sure you know, Wendy, um, there were some very concerning long-term studies of supplementation with to the tocopherol or form of vitamin E, the more common form that showed increased risk of prostate cancer and cardiovascular disease. That is not observed with tocotrienols, which are this relatively newly discovered form of vitamin E that we're talking about now. So it's a much safer form to supplement with, and it's a much more potent form. And I love how these nutrient studies come out on the, you know, CNN and all these the big newspaper outlets, how it kind of steering people away from supplements um, where the form that they're using in the study is terrible. It's a synthetic form of petroleum-based or what have you. And it's these are the forms that are prevalent in most vitamins that are, are sold in the drugstores and the, the membership stores. It drives me nuts. I'm, I know, I'm sure it does for you too. It's, it's like saying, study shows that food is not good for you. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Well, wait, what kind of food? <laughs> you know, how, where is the food grown? How, what, how much of the food are we talking about? Like people group like grouping supplements into one category like that is just meaningless and stupid, frankly. It, it just, if anyone sees an article like that, you can just dismiss it out of hand because you can, you can be assured that the person writing that does not, is not sophisticated or educated enough to be able to differentiate between different types of supplements. So yeah, that's, that's absurd. And uh, fortunately is relatively easy to dismiss. I, I wish people you know, most people are just seeing those headlines and keep scrolling and they're not actually asking those questions. But uh, yeah, anytime you see an article like that, that's that's the response. Yeah, I love how on your podcast on Revolution Health Radio that you take the, these studies that are coming on the headlines and really pick them apart and just shred them and, and uh, give, uh, you know, real concrete advice based on the evidence, uh, what studies that are done by the the better form of the nutrient, because the specific form of each nutrient really, really matters. Yes, absolutely does. The devil is in the details, as they say, and we've already covered several examples of that where, you know, calcium in spinach versus calcium in more bioavailable forms or folate versus folic acid, you know, much more bioavailable and less likely to cause problems. And so you really have to understand the nuance um, 
to get the most out of the, the, your nutrient strategy. And I hope that, you know, my, one of my goals with Adapt Naturals was just to make that easier for people, you know, since most people don't want to spend, understandably, like that's not their background, their training. They don't like to geek out and read nutrient density studies like I do. <laughs> you know, that's my job. Let me take care of that. And, you know, you, you do you, so to speak. Like it's, it's, we don't all need to be experts on that to live a good life. Yes. Yeah. And, and what about fiber? This is something a lot of people are taking. Um, let's talk about fiber in general, maybe some specific types like beta-glucan. Yeah. So this is a very controversial topic. It's not in conventional medical world. Like in, in conventional medicine, it's kind of universally agreed on that fiber is good and more fiber is better. Um, and then you have like the other end of the spectrum, like the carnivore crowd that says fiber is, is not only not necessary, it's actually harmful. And, um, I'm somewhere in the middle. I think fiber is really important. If you look at um, traditional cultures around the world, they generally had fairly, you know, fairly uh, higher fiber intake than we have today. Uh, I think there's a lot of research that shows that um, sol that soluble forms of fiber or types of fiber that are fermentable by our gut bacteria can produce short chain fatty acids like butyrate, many other compounds that are really beneficial to our health. And we're only kind of scratching the surface on that research now. So again, my preference is to get as much fiber as possible from diet. That's always the best source, I think. But then there are some uh, unique types of supplemental fiber that have additional benefits above and beyond what we might be able to obtain in a normal diet. You mentioned one of the, the biggest ones, which is beta-glucan. So this is a type of fiber that's found in mushrooms primarily, but also in some grains like oats. Uh, but the type of beta-glucan in mushrooms is a little different than the type in oats and is more therapeutic. Uh, Japanese scientists who's perhaps um, the, the global expert in beta-glucan, I'm forgetting his name at the moment, but he, uh, he calls beta-glucan biological response modifier. So what he means is that it, it powerfully activates and, and regulates, not, just, not necessarily stimulates, because you don't necessarily want something that's just stimulating the immune system all the time. That would lead to allergies or autoimmunity. <laughs> any number of other problems, but regulates the immune system so that it increases our defense against pathogens, infections, bacterial, fungal, viral infections, but it can also actually put the brakes on an autoimmune response. It can help our protection against environmental toxins. Um, and, and so it basically improves the biological response of our immune system. Uh, Beta-glucan also has been shown to lower cholesterol levels and improve lipid markers. It, 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 it has a blood pressure lowering effect. It can uh, lower blood sugar and improve insulin. Uh, a, a whole wide range of benefits that are, uh, again, only, only starting to be fully understood, although we have now a few decades of really compelling research. Well, Chris, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, where can we find more info about you, your website, and learn more about your supplement line? Yeah, thank you, Wendy. Uh, my content site is chriscresser.com. I've been doing this a long time, so we have about 1,300 free articles on the site. Uh, 17 ebooks, I believe, podcasts, Revolution Health Radio. So lots and lots of free information there if you want to dive deep on these topics. And then the supplement site is adaptnaturals.com. Learn more about our products there and place an order if they seem like a good fit for you. Thanks again yeah. for having me on the show, Wendy. Yeah, thank you so much, Chris. Yeah, I've been following you for a really long time. And, you know, I trust the content on your website implicitly. I mean, you have just incredible research and, uh, you know, a vast depth and breadth of knowledge. And so your content and everything on your website is just bar none. So so all the, my yeah. listeners, I highly recommend you know, you follow Chris on his podcast and his website's really amazing information. I really appreciate that, Wendy, and keep up the great work. And I'm looking forward to our future conversations. Yes, yes. And so everyone, thanks so much for tuning in to the Myers Detox Podcast. I'm Dr. Wendy Myers, and it's such a pleasure every week to bring you experts from around the world to help you to upgrade your health. And I just hope this show gave you just a couple little nuggets that could that help you, you know, put that piece of the puzzle for your health together. So thanks for tuning in. I'll talk to you very soon.
The Myers Detox Podcast is created and hosted by Wendy Myers. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Wendy Myers and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.